SportsLit is co-founded and co-hosted by Neil Acharya and Nate Sager. Engineer and technical producer, Michael Ella. Executive producer, Neil Acharya. Welcome to SportsLit. Jacob Pomeranke, the editorial director for the Society for American Baseball Research, is here to discuss Joe Jackson versus Chicago American League Baseball Club, never-before-seen trial transcript, which he co-edited with Dr. David J. Fletcher. The book was published in May 2023 by Eckhart's Press. years ago this month, a civil trial connected to the greatest game-fixing scandal in the history of North American sport commenced in a courtroom in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and it kind of slipped through the cracks of history. Well, the long and short of it was Joe Jackson, Shoeless Joe, one of those eight men out for the 1919 Chicago White Sox, sued his former ball club for back pay. A few other Black Sox filed similar actions, but he was the only one whose case ever saw the inside of a courtroom. Despite the prominence of the scandal of teams throwing the World Series and the stickiness that it has to this day, fewer than 10 people had even seen the court docs from the case before May 2023 when they were digitized and publicized by Pomeranke, co-editor David J. Fletcher, and their publisher Eckhart's Pressing, Joe Jackson versus Chicago American League Baseball Club, never-before-seen trial transcript. Now, between the book and uh, supplementary rating... I have to tell you, I have probably read more words for this episode than any other since Neil Acharya and I began this endeavor. And of course, that likely pales in comparison to the veritable editing Iditarod that Jacob Pomeranke and David Fletcher covered in bringing this book to market. But Jacob, that's his story to tell. Uh, briefly, uh, the Chicago-based Pomeranke, as noted, is the editorial director of the Society for American Baseball Research, or SABER. Now, I think people commonly associate Sabre with like all those nerdy baseball stats that are that are now uh, on, on the scoreboards and on the Chiron on, on the broadcast. But it's really an organization that does, you know, deep research and writing about the history of baseball, you know, the social history, the labor history, you know, the politics at various times. Pomeranke is also on the Sabre Black Sox Scandal Research Committee. He's stated Quote, it is a cold case, not a closed case, unquote, even though it happened 104 years ago. Now, by the time Joe Jackson and the White Sox ended up in a courtroom in Milwaukee, the reason it was in Milwaukee is because that was actually where the team was registered as a corporation. It didn't really draw a big media circus. And that sort of, I think, speaks to something universal about human nature and the collective impulse to just want to push on. I mean, the, the Black Sox scandal, you know, came right at the end of a decade. It was part and parcel of a, within a, it was kind of time stamped to a great, you know, ferment in the United States and Canada. There was, you know, economic uncertainty and upheaval triggered by a pandemic. You know, come, you know there's, there's the stress from wars overseas. There's resentment over housing and working conditions. Nothing like what we're dealing with right now. 
by 1924, I could see that people weren't really interested in any further relitigation of the 1919 World Series fix and the fallout and who, you know, wore the hair shirt for it, i.e. the eight players from the White Sox and other ball players who were also cast out as an effort to clean up the game. And maybe that's a little, maybe this is a topic for another time, but it kind of just feels like what we're going through the present where no one really wants to think about what 2020 exposed about our society. But, you know, that's just how it goes. A great American scandal, or any scandal really, anywhere, it, kind of, it has a life cycle, right? You know, that some someone gets put up on the uh, metaphorical spit, we all jab our forks in, and eventually we, you know, fill our bellies, the belly fire burns out, and we move on. And sometimes we forget about the people who were up on that metaphorical spit and how they had to continue living their lives and try to support themselves. Uh, Jackson, of course, took the White Sox to court because he was like, hey, you signed me to a contract even when there were, you know, these allegations and suspicions of a World Series fix. Who, you know, who even knew they had multi-year contracts back in 1920? I didn't. But, you know, his ouster from the game, the ouster of others. I mean, that cleaned up the game as far as the public cared. Now let's read about, you know, Babe Ruth socking some diggers while doing the Charleston on top of a flagpole and eating six hot dogs with his other hand. <laughs> now, since their names may come up, we probably should remind you who were the eight Black Sox players. So, um, it was two, two front-end starting pitchers, Eddie Seacott and Claude Lefty Williams. Then it was four infielders. First baseman Arnold Chick Gandel and the left side combo of shortstop Charles Swede Risberg and third baseman George Buck Weaver and then utility player Fred McMullen. And then it was center fielder Oscar Happy Felsch. And then it was Jackson, who was the cleanup batter and left fielder. And back in those days, teams put their best batter in the number four spot, typically, because that was they were thought to be the one who would have to drive in the runs. Only one batter was a better run creator in. 1919 MLB than Joe Jackson. Some dude on the Boston Red Sox, last name of Ruth. Apparently this Ruth was a lefty swinging power hitter who could also pitch. Boy, I sure hope his team hung on to him. Jackson, by one specific number, was an elite batter in his time. Uh, there's a stat called, fancy stat called adjusted OPS plus, which tries to tell you how much better or worse a batter was than the league average over a season or his entire career. Well, Jackson's adjusted OPS plus lifetime was 170, 12th best in the hist entire history of Major League Baseball, going back to the 1870s. Now, obviously, a career stat versus a single season stat is not about, it's like apples to pomegranates. But the only batter in the 2023 MLB season with an adjusted OPS plus better than 170 was Shohei Atani. Yeah, it surprised me too. Another powerful lefty swinging batter who could also pitch. Boy, I sure hope his team held on to him, or if they didn't, no fan bases freaked out thinking he might fly north to join them instead of just wheeling across town to sign elsewhere. Now, if that 170 of Jackson's does require some f further context, let's take off 10 points to account for the fact that he had a relatively short career compared to most players of his caliber because he was only 33 years old when he was removed from Chicago's roster in September 1920 when 
when the all the allegations really started to pile up, and that was nearly a year following that tainted World Series. Generally, you know, players' rate stats go down toward the end of their career because performance always declines with age. Except during the 90s and 80s, and we know what was going on then, thanks to Jose Cansenko. And of course, now you shave another 10 points off that adjusted OPS to plus to account for the shallowness of the you know the 1910s talent pool. At that time, the American and National League teams intentionally excluded black athletes. They also weren't getting their white ball players from you know organized farm systems or entry drafts. They kind of just looked where looked where they could find them, you know, from small town teams, from colleges. So that gives Shoeless Joe 150. He was 50% better for, for argument's sake than the average hitter over his career. And he was had a pretty good glove out left field. Well, that puts him in a class with, you know, Hall of Fame players of more recent vintage like Edgar Martinez or Jim Tomei. You know, guys who were, you know, real real baseball fans know were did it just about as well as anyone. Of course, he would still be lower than Dick Allen. 156 for uh, Dick Allen, another Chicago White Sox slugger who is not in the Hall of Fame. Now, ultimately, Jackson Long Longo went through the hole when the... Legend becomes fact. You print the legend uh, arc. He's become part of the general sports culture. You know, there's the two different movies that came out when uh, Neil and I were young. Obviously, Eight Men Out and Field of Dreams. Uh, and there's also this whole thing. Uh, now, Jonathan Jackson was here a couple months ago to talk about his book about the making of Slapshot. There's that great line in the movie, you know, after the Hanson brothers go up in the stands to fight, fit, fight the fans and they get arrested. And uh, Paul Newman slash Reggie Dunlop's like, ah, you can't put these guys in jail. They're folk heroes. And the test sergeant's like, they're criminals. He's like, yeah, most criminals started out as folk heroes. Well, in the case of the Black Sox, it was kind of like they were accused criminals and afterwards became folk heroes. <laughs> they were never actually convicted of anything, as the movie's covered. And there's a sort of a, this room, you know, romanticization of you know, that's become attached to, you know, Joe Jackson and others. You know, I can be scrolling through my timeline or I've got all these baseball groups on on social media and someone's just like, why isn't Shoeless Joe in the Hall of Fame? Uh, well, I guess we'll talk about that that with Jacob. Uh, I admit that this is almost a case where the, the more I read, the, the less I'm sure about. I thought I was well-versed in the Black Sox saga before opening Joe Jackson versus Chicago American League Baseball Club. And it turns out I had that type of overconfidence from you might associate with the guy in the stands of the ball game who goes, yeah, yeah, give me a, you know three months of intensive coaching and training and and I could hit major league pitching, yeah, yeah, sure you could. <laughs> now obviously you know just reading a lot, having watched eight, I usually watch eight men out every couple of years. That's not on par with what Pomeranke, Fletcher, and their Saber colleagues do to try to correct. Uh, you know, common perceptions about the Black Sox. And if you want to know more, I highly recommend their Eight Myths Out page at Sabre.org. Uh, but I still think you can hang on, keep uh, eight men out. Uh, not Field of Dreams, though. <laughs> I believe, you know, hardcore history and, uh, I don't know, what do you want to call it? The dramatizations, creative licensing. I think they can kind of be side by side. You know, just make sure to signal before you change lanes. Well, it's worth talking about all that with Jacob Pomeranke about this book, the endless reverb from the Black Sox that echoes to this day when Major League Baseball now has official gambling partners and um, 
there's debate about you know what hap what happens when a player does you know something really bad really bad and you know potentially criminal and you, they're under contract. Uh, one last thing, of course, we do have our we do invite you to have our extensive backlog back catalog. Pardon me. Uh, go, go to sportslit.ca and you can find all of our episodes dating back to 2017 and links to buy the books. And, of course, you can find our episodes wherever you receive your podcasts. And now, without further ado, Jacob Pomeranke. Welcome, Jacob Pomeranke to Sportslet. You have our gratitude for doing this, being our first baseball book in 2024. I thought I would dive right in because as much of a baseball nerd as I am, I had never heard of this before. June 16th, 1917, the Fenway Park Gamblers Riot. What was that? <laughs> so in 1917, uh, the Red Sox uh, in Boston played a home game against the Chicago White Sox. And uh, the Red Sox uh, had Babe Ruth uh, pitching on the mound uh, against Eddie Seacott of the White Sox. And basically what happened was the White Sox uh, took an early lead. And so the fans at Fenway Park uh, who had bet on the hometown Red Sox uh, were getting upset that they were you know, about to lose some money. And the Red Sox had not been playing well. They were on a losing streak, uh, had just come back home to Boston. And so uh, there was some rain clouds overhead. And so in an attempt to stall the game uh, in hopes that the rain would uh, wash it out, uh, a group of a couple hundred gamblers uh, from the right field pavilion marched onto the field in the fifth inning and uh, tried to disrupt the game. And they basically just milled around and stood there for a while. Um, and uh, they actually uh, came onto the field multiple times. And eventually, the uh, White Sox players tried to leave the field, and the fans uh, started attacking them. Uh, and the White Sox players defended themselves uh, occasionally with some baseball bats. Um, two of them got arrested. Uh, Buck Weaver and Fred McMullen uh, got arrested for assaulting uh, two Boston fans, and the charges were later dismissed. But a uh, huge riot on the field. This made national headlines. Uh, American League President Ban Johnson, uh, you know, decided that he was going to uh, enable a, a crackdown on gambling at ballparks. This was something that was going on all the time, and so uh, just you know, a, a big, uh, big incident uh, in the you know in the lead up to the 1919 world series scandal. Um, but it doesn't get a lot of attention now because, uh, obviously the black Sox scandal kind of overshadows all of it. But, uh, yeah. in, this, in this one incident, the white Sox uh, were kind of heroes against the gamblers rather than the other way around. Yeah. I, I, I it brings up two Simpsons quotes in my mind and Neil's going to want to throttle me for immediately going there, but it's just like Marge Simpson. I never realized history was so filthy. And it's also Homer Simpson. Tell you have a gambling problem. Maybe that should have tipped them off. They had they had an issue before you know the Black Sox. But we want to come to the book, of course, which is Joe Jackson versus Chicago American League Baseball Club, edited by yourself and David A. Fletcher, and published last year. What was the trail of paper? How did it get from you know these transcripts from a hundred years ago that no one, only a handful of living people had seen? How did it get from there to book form last year? So the short version of the story is uh, in the 1950s. So this trial took place in 1924, 100 years ago. And uh, around the 1950s, 
Um, there was a court clerk in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, who was uh, going through old files and they were going to throw out the transcript of Sheila Joe's uh, lawsuit against the White Sox. Um, they were going to throw it out uh, along with other old records. And they contacted the son of Sheila Joe's lawyer, uh, by the guy by the name of Robert Cannon. He was a respected judge uh, in Wisconsin at this time. And they said, hey, you know, your father was uh, part of this trial. Do you want these records? Uh, he said, absolutely. So uh, he's the family has uh, kept a copy of this transcript, um, you know, ever since then, uh, the late 1950s. Um, and they've only allowed a few uh, researchers and writers uh, to, to view uh, their copy of the transcript. And one of them was my co-author, uh, David Fletcher. He's uh, from Chicago and a great baseball historian and researcher. Um, so he was able to view a copy of, uh, of this transcript. And they actually allowed another writer named Jerome Holtzman, who was Major League Baseball's official historian uh, before he died. And uh, Holtzman was able to make a copy of this transcript. So now you've got two uh, copies <laughs> of this transcript floating around. But really no one else had ever seen them before. Um, and before Holtzman died, uh, he sold a lot of his papers and, and research files to David Fletcher. Um, and so Fletcher uh, now has a copy. And now that it's 100 years after the trial, we decided to make this available because uh, very few people on the planet have ever seen this transcript, uh, all the testimony uh, within. So uh, it's a really fascinating document. Um, it's a lot of incredible research uh, resource about the, uh, about the Black Sox scandal. And so we're very proud to uh, be able to make that available for future researchers. Indeed. And uh, how, how I, I was surprised just by how much about like, the, I guess, the inner workings of, uh, you know, contract negotiations in those days ended up out in open court, so to speak. Is that is that accurate? Yes. And, and that's something that, uh, you know, I think is one of the great revelations of this transcript and being able to go back and, and look at this, because um, it, the trial largely hinged on Joe Jackson signing his contract for the 1920 season uh, with the White Sox and what the circumstances were uh, involved in, in his signing this contract. And so, you know, you've got uh, all sides, all parties, uh, both from the White Sox front office and Shoeless Joe and his wife, Katie, uh, testifying as to, you know, what the circumstances of his contract negotiations were. So this is something, uh, you know, we don't hear much anymore. You're not going to hear that from Shohei Otani and his agent, um, you know, going into <laughs> great detail on the record under oath. Um, about contract negotiations. So, you know, being able to kind of get into the nitty gritty of front office operations, um, this is a, a very rare document, very uh, rare opportunity to see something like this. Yeah, and it, it sort of gets into, I think, it, it shows that things aren't maybe as cut and dried as they're popularly portrayed. Like it, they, there were suspicions about, you know, the players having, I guess, action on the World Series, but still they were willing to continue employing those ball players. Yeah, you know, there's a there's a theory called condemnation, a legal theory um, called condemnation, where um, if your employer knows that you know you have uh, committed a criminal act and yet essentially forgives you uh, for it by continuing to employ you, um, then therefore, you know, as Joe's lawyers tried to argue, um, you know, Joe should not be held responsible for that because Charles Comiskey and the White Sox offered him a contract um, after he helped fix the 1919 World Series, and make no mistake think about it. Sheila's Joe did help fix the World Series. He did take the money. Um, that is very, very clear uh, by looking at his testimony 
uh, in this transcript. Uh, you know, we we didn't even know what he did with it because they um, they uh, deposed the bank teller in Savannah, Georgia, where his <laughs> wife Katie deposited uh, $5,100 in cash after the 1919 World Series. So um, we know for a fact that he took the money. There's no question about that. And uh, you can you know, see that very clearly uh, in this transcript. Hmm. Yeah. And I guess like sort of my broader question is for researchers and people who want to keep you know, dig, digging into this, but, you know, true historians, what's the value that they can now pick up this book and say, oh, wow, okay. Yeah, you know, for researchers, it's a it's a goldmine because this not only has all of the transcript of this 1924 trial, it was a civil lawsuit, it was a breach of contract uh, lawsuit. Um, Joe was suing for back pay um, for that contract that he signed in 1920. Um, but, you know, this also gets into great detail about the 1919 World Series and about the fixing of it, because not only is Shoeless Joe on the witness stand, but so are three of his Black Sox teammates. Um, who were either testified live uh, in Wisconsin or they were deposed um, for this trial. And so you've got, you know, the testimony of four out of the eight Black Sox players. Um, again, this is testimony no one's really ever seen before. So uh, being able to, you know, read their story in their own words, and they go into great detail about, you know, the, the fixing of the World Series and, you know, going into that week in October of 1919 um, and getting into their heads about, you know, what they did and why they did it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I mean, I actually watched, uh, you know, review, read, I probably read more for this episode than any episode we've done. And I went back and viewed eight men out and I'm still not entirely sure what, what all the moving parts were when in the fixing of the world series. But at the end of the day, it's like, if you took money, if your teammates thought you were, you know, not on the level that that's as good as that's as good as, you know, deliberately dropping a ball. Right. Absolutely. You know, and I think this was a, a conspiracy that had a lot of moving parts and, you know, nobody quite knew exactly uh, what the others were doing and nobody knew who was in and who was out at any given moment. Um, there is some evidence that the White Sox uh, players called off the fix uh, during the middle of the World Series when they weren't paid by the gamblers. So, um, you know, it, it's hard to say. It's hard to get in their heads. Um, you know, they've all been dead for, for decades now. So it's very hard to get in their heads about exactly what happened or you know, why it happened. Some, some of them, you know, took these secrets to the grave. But, you know, we do have more documentation. We do have more, you know, research that we've been able to uncover. Um, we've got more primary sources of information. We've got their salary contracts now that we never had uh, before. We've got, you know, trial transcript and these legal records. Uh, we've got hundreds of interviews uh, of all the players from the 1919 World Series um, that have started to come to light as, you know, more newspapers have been digitized online. Mm. Um, so we've got a lot of new information out there. And, you know, we like to say the Black Sox scandal is a cold case, not not a closed case because we're still learning more about what happened. And of course, it's still very relevant today, uh, given the proliferation of sports gambling uh, in the 21st century as well. Yeah, that is something I, I wanted to get, get get to. Like why, how have, you know, the, the recent changes, uh, of course, in 2018, the U.S. Supreme Court struck down a ban that, that keeps states from having uh, gambling laws. And I think now it's legal in about 40 states probably. And, in Canada, but, you know, provincial governments have, you know, waved it in and now everything's a gambling ad constantly on broadcast. So how, do, how has that made the Black Sox, you know, timeless and topical in, in our time? 
Yeah, you know, not only are we continuing to learn more about what happened in 1919, I mean, we're still, you know, finding some relevance today, um, especially in light of sports gambling. I mean, you cannot watch a, a broadcast on TV or radio, baseball, or just about any other sport without being inundated with uh, ads for gambling or, you know, trying to place a bet on your phone. Um, you know, that's not how they gambled in 1919, but it, it was just as easy of an opportunity for fans to get involved and, and bet on what was happening uh, in 1919. So there are a lot of parallels um, to the culture of gambling and just, you know, the ease of opportunity. And that's one of the big reasons why the box box scandal happened was because, you know, it was a very easy opportunity for them. They were around gambling all the time. You could go to Fenway Park in Boston. You could go to Wrigley Field in Chicago and bet on the next pitch, just like you can today. Again, you know, it's a little, the technology is a little bit different today and how it's done. Um, but, you know, the betting culture was very, very similar. Um, and so, you know, that's a, a big part of the reason uh, why it happened is because the players saw an opportunity uh, to make some, you know, what they thought was easy money. They thought it was a high reward, low risk proposition uh, because they didn't even if they got caught, they didn't think they'd get punished because no one really had ever been punished before uh, for fixing games or gambling on games. So, um, you know, this is a, a big part of the reason why it happened. And, you know, as we go back in history and, and look at the Black Sox scandal, um, you know, it offers a lot of lessons for uh, what we see today as well. I guess uh, from your perspective as a historian, why was that? I guess the one that became sort of the last straws, like this is, okay, this is where we're drawing the line. This has gone too far. Well, you know, one thing the Black Sox did not realize is just how much the environment had changed in 1919. Um, you know, they had seen some of their own old teammates like Hal Chase, the corrupt first baseman, um, Heine Zimmerman, a uh, you know, triple crown winning infielder for the Cubs. Um, you know, they had seen guys like that fixing games, throwing games, betting on their own teams. Um, and none of them had really ever been punished. And so the Black Sox leading up to 1919, you know, pretty pretty well assumed and correctly assumed um, that, again, even if they fixed the World Series, even if they got caught, nobody was going to punish them because nobody was really in charge uh, in baseball. There was kind of a power vacuum at the time. And by 1920, when the scandal was publicly exposed, you've got a new commissioner, Judge Kennesaw Mountain Landis, uh, kind of the, you know, kind of the, the czar of baseball. Um, he's got absolute control. And you've also got an environment, especially in the United States, where, you know, there's a lot of reform movement going around, trying to clean up the corruption of the World War One era. Um, and so, you know, prohibition had just been enacted uh, by Congress. And so, um, you know, th this was kind of the the environment that was happening in 1920 when the Black Sox scandal was exposed, trying to clean up the game and clean up the country. And that was uh, a big part of, you know, kind of the attitude in 1920. And the Black Sox just did not anticipate that, you know, they were going to get caught up in this. They thought it was going to be like the old days and everybody, everything would just get swept under the rug, just like it had always been done before. Yeah. Is there something other, you know, period in American history, like recent more recent American history where you were that something like that kind of happened? Well, you know, I think there's a lot of parallels with the uh, performance enhancing drug scandals in baseball in the 1990s and 2000s. Um, you know, baseball players and athletes in other sports, um, you know, were kind of getting away with it uh, for a long, mm -hmm. long time. In fact, they were um, almost encouraged, um, you know, to, uh, to, to to participate in this culture. Um, and, you know, nobody was being punished. In fact, they were all being uh, very handsomely rewarded. Um, you know, profits were being made by everybody. And so um, I think there's a lot of parallels to 
how uh, baseball and its you know leaders uh, decided to kind of crack down at some point later on and and point the finger at a couple players and say, well, you know, these guys shouldn't have done that, even though just about anybody else in the game was doing it. And again, there was a lot of implicit encouragement uh, to do that sort of thing. I think that was also true with gambling and game fixing uh, in the 1910s as well. Yeah, just just on this on the steroid era. Uh, how, how accurate is this as a sort of working timeline? I think 1991 or 1992, Major League Baseball like sort of sent out a memo saying, "Hey, you know, steroids are illegal. Don't do don't do them." But it wasn't until 2005 that there was any formal testing program. Absolutely, and, and just, you know, baseball had a lot of opportunities to clean that up um, over the course of those you know 14 or 15 years. Um, they had a lot of opportunities to say, "Hey, this is not something we want in the game." Um, you know, we're going to punish uh, the players that did get caught uh, with substances, uh, you know, in the clubhouse or uh, on their person, and they just you know chose to kind of overlook that, especially with Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa with the home run race. They, they really just overlooked it. Uh, for many, many years. And it wasn't until, you know, 2004 or five, six, uh, when they decided to crack down and say, okay, we're going to implement testing. We're going to work with the players union. Um, you know, Congress was threatening them, uh, major league baseball, um, you know, to kind of boost up its, uh, its testing program. Um, and so again, there's a lot of parallels to gambling because, um, with game fixing in the 1910s, you know, it was rampant. It was it was all over the place. There were, you know, it was a mini scandal with uh, Ty Cobb and Trish Speaker, two future mm. Hall of Famers, um, who, you know, absolutely fixed the game uh, in, late in the season in 1919 between uh, Detroit and Cleveland. And, you know, they got away with it for almost 10 years before it was publicly exposed. Um, and there were a lot of instances like that. This was just something that happened. The, the World Series in 1919 was absolutely not the only uh, game that got fixed. It was just, you know, the brightest spotlight. And it was the one where they got uh, caught very quickly. Yeah. And I think as people if people don't know, the reason that, that it came to a grand jury was a grand jury was already, I think, looking into a Chicago Cubs game that might have been uh fixed uh, during the 1920 season. Absolutely. And, you know, the White Sox, we, we now have evidence that the uh, White Sox in 1920 were throwing games all throughout that season as well, uh, up to uh, probably 12 games that they threw uh, in the 1920 regular season. So again, this was something that was just happening over and over again. And baseball just didn't do anything about it. They swept it under the rug for years and years. And, um, you know, finally the pressure kept building and the, the grand jury uh, absolutely helped uh, bringing in kind of the, the strong arm of the legal system um, in order to uh, kind of, you know, get these players on the, on the witness stand uh, testifying under oath. And that was really what, you know, spurred the uh, exposure of the Black Sox scandal. If not for that, it's possible, you know, we're still uh, thinking that maybe it's just rumors, just like some of the other uh, rumors that are still out there about World Series past. Hmm. Are, 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 were there others? Like, were there other, other World Series that were there had elicited a strong suspicion? There are certainly I, others uh, with suspicion. There are no others that we have, you know, absolute proof. Uh, 1903, the first modern World Series, uh, Boston and Pittsburgh. Um, the same gambler, Sport Sullivan in Boston, who helped fix <laughs> the 1919 World Series, was accused of trying to bribe Cy Young and his catcher, Lou Krieger. Uh, in, in the 1903 World Series. So, uh, you know, again, it, a lot of the same characters uh, are involved in this. And, you know, it was it was not 
dealt with, uh, even though there were many opportunities to do so. But there were other World Series as well, 1905, 1908, 1912, uh, 1914, 1918. All of them had pretty strong rumors, but uh, we still don't have any definitive proof. Nobody on the inside ever really confessed uh, publicly um, to say, you know, yes, these these games were thrown. There's just uh, a lot of smoke and, and occasional fire, um, but nothing quite like 1919. That was the big one where we've got, you know, insiders who said, yes, we did it. We were crooked, um, you know, and they and they said that multiple times. So it's, uh, you know, very definitive that 1919 was fixed. We're still, <laughs> you know, a little bit unclear about the others. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess at some point, at least there, there was – you know, someone had, a, uh, some of the ball players did at least have a sort of, I guess, sometimes known as the come to Jesus moment. So I guess at least there was that, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, you know, it's one of those things where obviously you can't get in people's heads, but, you know, when the opportunity is there to make a lot of money, you know, sometimes in case of your entire annual salary or double your salary, um, you know, for a week's worth of, of work uh, to lose those games, I mean, I can see, you know, where the temptation uh, really was was there for the players. It's just, um, you know, but some players uh, chose to, you know, reject that and, and chose to stay on the level, including uh, some of their White Sox teammates. So, you know, it's, it's a decision that everyone has to make for themselves. And uh, unfortunately, we can't really get into their heads to figure out why. But, you know, usually the simplest yeah. answer, uh, which is greed, uh, usually that one uh, explains most of it. Yeah, agreed. And I guess that's the old human human frailty uh, aspect to it as well. Now, in terms of the you know, the civil action that Joe Jackson brought against against the White Sox, what 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 did, what how what what can you sort of tell us about his uh, lawyer Ray Cannon? What kind of what kind of figure was he in in, in trying to take on a, a major league baseball team with a, in, in defense of a player who'd kind of had been cast out of the sport? So Ray Cannon was uh, from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. He was kind of a firebrand of a lawyer. He was said to be the best trial uh, attorney uh, in the state of Wisconsin. He uh, reportedly won over 100 consecutive jury trials um, in his career uh, up to that point. So, And he did technically win this trial as well, um, at least by the jury verdict. But uh, as we'll uh, talk about, um, that verdict uh, did get set aside by the judge uh, later on. Um, but Cannon uh, actually had his sights set a lot higher than just Shoeless Joe and the Black Sox. Um, while he did represent a couple of the Black Sox players, um, his real goal was to establish a Major League Baseball Players Union. Um, and his son, Robert Cannon, later uh, became the executive director of the fledgling Players Union in the 1950s and 60s before oh. Marvin Miller took over. Um, so this was, uh, you know, kind of a dream of Ray Cannon to uh, kind of go after uh, organized baseball at this time. And one of the ways that he chose to uh, kind of go after uh, organized baseball was by representing the Black Sox. He had grown up in Milwaukee with Happy Felsch, the center fielder for the 1919 White Sox. So he knew all these guys. He had played semi-pro baseball with some of them. Um, he was very familiar, uh, you know, with the uh, White Sox, the Cubs, with the minor league Milwaukee Brewers at the time. Uh, he had a lot of friends in baseball, but he was also a very good lawyer. And so, um, you know, four of the Black Sox players ended up suing uh, the Chicago White Sox uh, after they were permanently banned uh, from baseball. Um, and Cannon uh, represented three of them, uh, Joe Jackson, uh, Swede Risberg, and Happy Felsch. Uh, the other one was Buck Weaver, who had a different attorney. But um, the only one that went to trial was Shoeless Joe's. They were 
were all the cases were all uh, kind of consolidated um, and Shoeless Joe's went to trial. And, um, it, you know, if if Shoeless Joe's verdict had been allowed to stand, then the others probably would have continued on with their trials. But uh, once this trial wrapped up, um, the others basically settled for uh, for peanuts. Um, with the White Sox. But, you know, it was a really fascinating trial. It lasted for two weeks in the winter of 1924. Um, and then uh, the uh, the ending of it was quite dramatic. Um, <laughs> the the yes. uh, judge uh, cited Shoeless Joe and Happy Felch for perjury. Um, they had been confronted with some of their old testimony. And they had uh, basically said under oath, though, you know, we didn't say that, uh, you know, while we were under oath a few years earlier. So um, they were cited for perjury and the verdict was set aside. And uh, so Joe really didn't get any money uh, out of this trial like he was hoping for. And I, I guess ultimately Ray Cannon also didn't get the, that stretch goal of, of uh, trying to uh, organize uh, baseball players, which, again, as you mentioned, didn't happen really, really start to, to roll until I guess the late 1960s. <laughs> yeah, it's a, that, that one took a, a while longer. And, you know, this was really his last uh, foray into uh, baseball and the legal world um, after these kind of Black Sox cases wrapped up. Uh, Ray Cannon really didn't have much involvement. He actually went on to run for Congress. Uh, he served three terms in Congress uh, from Wisconsin. Um, so he, he was off and running with his own legal career and his political career. Um, but, uh, but, you know, at this time in the early 1920s, uh, he had big dreams and eventually those dreams did come true. He just wasn't around to see it. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned too, that Robert Cannon, the Robert Cannon who was involved with the MLB players association was his son, because I still remember the chapter in Marvin Miller's book, a whole new ball. I think it's called, called a whole new ball game. And it's got a chapter Cannon country. And I was like, Okay, I'm like, that, that that could not be a coincidence. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, something, of course, that interesting that's happened, uh, Jacob. You know, we had Jonathan, our mutual friend Jonathan Jackson, as a guest a while ago, talking about his book about the movie Slapshot. And I think my favorite line in the whole movie is uh, when Reggie Dunlop says, uh, "You know, most folk heroes started out as criminals. In this case, went the other kind of went the other way, right? Uh, that the Black Sox were accused criminals who became folk heroes." How did that? How did that? You know, sort of process play out, and I guess in the popular, you know, American imagination. Well, you know, Shoeless Joe is is really the one we're talking about here, and you know, he was always a star. I mean, he was very charismatic. You know, obviously, he could hit like nobody's business. Um, you know, nobody disputed that. Not even Charles Comiskey on the stand in this trial. Um, you know, everybody was impressed and, and awed by Shoeless Joe Jackson. And so he was already a big star um, just for his baseball abilities. And then, you know, then you've got this, you know, scandal that he may or may not have been mixed up in. There's always been a little bit of debate over, you know, whether he actually um, earned his bribe money on the field. Um, I'm of the opinion that, uh, you know, he hit pretty well, but it's hard to say because he didn't uh, always come up in the clutch, but, you know, we're, we're also talking about kind of this iconic figure that we almost expect to, you know, hit 1000 in the world series. Well, he didn't do that, but he hit 375. That's pretty good. Um, so, you know, so he was already a star. He was already kind of this, you know, almost legendary figure. He's got this nickname, um, you know, that evokes, you know, this kind of the old, genteel southern uh ball player you know from the cotton mills he's not wearing shoes it's just 
you know, it, it's it's just an incredible story already. And then you add the scandal, you add the, you know, potential injustice of him getting banned for life, um, you know, and then fighting for reinstatement and never getting reinstated. Um, and then, you know, years down the line, you've got Eight Men Out, and then you've got this novel Shoeless Joe from W.P. Kinsella, a Canadian author. And, you know, it's just it, it just builds and builds from there. You know, the, not many ballplayers are the subject of one Hollywood movie. And Shoeless Joe is kind of the star of two. Um, <laughs> and, you know, and they came out, you know, back to back, 1988, 1989. And so um, that was really, um, you know, this this the building of the legend of Shoeless Joe, um, you know, gained new life, um, you know, decade, three decades after he died. Um, and, you know, you've also got this, this phrase, say it ain't so, Joe, um, which has lived on, you know, this is a story that did not happen. Um, it's always <laughs> been a myth, but the phrase has become part of Americana. You can see it in, you know, headlines. When the New York Yankees uh, hired Joe Torre to manage their team in the 1990s, you know, that was the headline that one of the local newspapers used. Uh, say it ain't so, Joe, you know, for Joe Torre. So this is, you know, a phrase that has lived on and kept Shoeless Joe's name, you know, in the public eye. And so, uh, you know, and even today, a generation after Field of Dreams and Eight Men Out, um, you know, you've got this uh, this Field of Dreams game that Major League Baseball has put on in Iowa. So even today, we're seeing a regeneration of this legend of Shoeless Joe and this, you know, cult figure uh, in American society and baseball society. He's kind of transcended the game, even though so much of the portrayal of Shoeless Joe is kind of this mythical figure, um, you know, and, and not very real to life at all. Um, the, the real Shoeless Joe is a very interesting character and a very interesting human being. Um, but, you know, what we know about him and what most people think about him is kind of this almost this cartoon character in, in a way because of Hollywood, because of Major League Baseball, and then just because of, you know, what has lived on with this scandal. Yeah, I'm thinking of the movie Eight Men. They kind of just play him as the uh, as the naif. You know, he doesn't he doesn't really know anything that's going on. But that, but he was actually you know a, a fairly shrewd uh, you know business uh, you know man off the field. He had he had side hustles going and and stuff like that. Oh, absolutely. No, he was a very smart businessman. And it is true that he was illiterate. He could not read or write. Um, you know, he quit school uh, around six years old. So he had no formal education. His wife, Katie, who did, who was educated, um, you know, she would read his contracts, uh, sign his name on, on most legal documents, um, you know, and she would kind of be his business partner uh, and his eyes and ears. Um, but he was a very smart man. He ran a lot of successful businesses throughout his life, both during his baseball career and after. Afterwards, um, and so he did very well for himself. Um, and you know, again, he he knew what he was doing. Um, he just you know because he couldn't read or write, we have this impression. And sometimes because you know he's from South Carolina, uh, we have this impression that you know oh he was just a, a dumb hick from the cotton mills. Um, but that's not really true. He was very shrewd. He was very smart uh, in his own way. He just wasn't formally educated like many people at that time. Yeah, I mean it's it's a much different age, and I mean it's a Growing up in sort of probably a rural sort of you know, ag agrarian environment, you, you went you went to work on the farm. That's how, and uh, that that was that was how how it was. Uh, one thing I did want to ask though, when did when did the sort of surge in uh, interest in the story, like going back over decades, when did it really start to take off to the point where it was where Hollywood studios got interested in making movies about it? 
Well, you know, the, this is a story that kind of, you know, keeps coming back. And there's there's reasons why it keeps coming back. And some of that is um, there's usually a gambling scandal in one sport or another uh, just about every, you know, 15 or 20 years. So every generation, um, you know, has kind of this this lesson of, oh, remember the Black Sox or don't be like the Black Sox. Um, you know, whether it's Pete Rose or whether it's football gambling scandals in the 1960s, um, you've got a college basketball big scandal in 1950. Um, you know, so, so there, there's every generation seems to have its own uh, kind of scandals of, of integrity. And so the Black Sox are always held up as, you know, well, that one was that one was the first and it was also the worst. Uh, you know, eight players kicked out of baseball, including, again, this iconic star. She was Joe Jackson. Um, so every generation, you know, people learn about it uh, anew. And so, you know, now you've got people, you know, watching the films. Uh, Field of Dreams or Eight Men Out, you know, they're shown on TV, on cable, uh, or, you know, some of them are still streaming. So, you know, you can you can watch these films over and over again and you can continue to learn, you know, about this story and who they are. And, you know, I will give a little bit of credit to Sabre, Society for American Baseball Research, um, you know, some of the research uh, that our members have done um, to kind of keep this story in the public eye and, and you know, learn more about it. You know, every time there's something new that comes out, whether it's the salary contract cards um, or film footage, we got five minutes of film footage that was discovered uh, up in Dawson City, um, you know, about 10 years ago yeah um, it's so, on library and archive canada so yeah so now we've got you know five minutes of game footage uh from the 1919 world series that no one had ever seen before so you know this information keeps trickling out and and we keep learning more um about this scandal and it's you know it's just fascinating it has so many universal human elements it's got greed it's got corruption it's got betrayal you know injustice redemption you you name it um, the Black Sox scandal has all of it. it. You know, there's something for everyone uh, to find of interest. And the more that we learn, you know, the more interesting it gets, the more questions I have and the more questions I can answer. Um, you know, it's just we keep learning more. It's really just a, a story, I think, that's going to continue to fascinate us for another hundred years. Yeah. And, and I also want to get into the sort of uh, tensions between, I guess, the hard, cold, hard facts and then I guess fiction's presented as fact, which is a, a saying from a, a British, uh, I picked up from a British novelist whose name is you know, slipping my mind, unfortunately, at the moment. Uh, what, what is still the value of, of the movie Eight Men Out? Because I know you had, a, I know Sabre, you were part of the committee that came out with Eight Myths Out in 2019, but what what value, if any, does the, does the movie still retain, at, retain when it takes sort of a lot of liberties with what really happened? Well, you know, I think it, it, that's true of most Hollywood films, and I think it, it is something we all have to accept that, uh, you know, the, the Hollywood portrayal is rarely going to be accurate to real life. Um, but, you know, the film itself is so well made, and it's just such a fascinating account of, you know, this story. It's got, you know, great casting, great cinematography, great you know, score, uh, the costumes are incredible. You know, watching the movie is just, it's a really fun experience. It's a really entertain, entertaining experience. Um, you just have to know, you know, going in, well, the accuracy of it, uh, you know, not so much. Um, but, the you know, Eight Men Out is always going to be the elephant in the room. 
it's always going to be something that, you know, we're going to have to deal with as this is how people come across this story for the first time. That has been true since the book came out in 1963 and since the film came out uh, about 25 years later. And so, you know, that's that's something I think we're always going to have to deal with is that this is how a lot of people learn about the story. And, you know, my role with Sabre and with the Black Sox Scandal Research Committee is to let people know, hey, there's more out there. And if you are interested in, in learning more, there's a lot more out there. And we put together the Eight Miss Out Project in 2019 for the 100th anniversary of the, the World Series um, to say, you know, hey, here's what we've learned. This is a one-stop shop to say, here's what the new information is. Here's what we've got. Um, you know, help us learn more. Get involved and uh, be part of this. We put out newsletters uh, twice a year with new findings, new research, new analysis. So there's always something to learn, always something to talk about. And, uh, you know, it's a story that we'll, you know, continue to be talking about for a while. And, I, and I'm always sometimes reluctant to ask people to, you know, shout out other people because they're always you're always liable to forget someone. But who are some of the other sort of writers at Sabre who have really, you know, kept, you know, kept the ball rolling on this sort of file? So, uh, you know, we've got we've got a few members of our Black Sox committee uh, that are continue to be active, continue to do some great research. Um, Bill Lamb, who is a former prosecutor uh, from New Jersey, he is uh, really a fascinating uh, legal analysis on not only this trial, but also the Black Sox criminal trial and the grand jury hearings. Um, he was really the first person to actually see this transcript and to uh, and to put it all together in his own book called Black Sox in the Courtroom about 10 years ago. Um, and so, you know, that book uh, has really helped you know, grow our knowledge and our understanding of, of all the different legal proceedings. Um, Bruce Allardyce uh, here in Chicago, he's written a lot about the gamblers um, and, you know, told their stories for the first time. They're, they're uh, people who don't want their stories uh, told uh, very often, but uh, he's been able to dig up, you know, their life stories and tell those stories uh, in Sabre Publications. Um, you know, Rick Hewn is another one. Uh, you know, Gene Carney, uh, the late Gene mm -hmm. Carney was um, the uh, the former chair of Sabres Black Sox uh, Scandal Committee. He wrote a book called Burying the Black Sox about the cover up of the scandal that Major League Baseball engaged in. Um, so really fascinating, uh, fascinating account of kind of that year in between the 1919 World Series and the 1920 Grand Jury, um, you know, and, and kind of all the shenanigans that went on uh, behind the scenes trying to uh, trying to expose in some cases trying to expose the scandal and others trying to hide it. So, uh, you know, again, just a, a lot of great research that's out there. Um, a lot of different articles and different books, uh, you know, that we've, uh, put together just to kind of keep learning more. Yeah. And I, and I guess overall, like how much does that help people understand that, you know, the, the hires up in any sport, the, you know, the ownership class, the executive class, they, they, they're how they're maybe always started looking for the, I guess maybe taking the the path of least resistance to uh to uh what looks like a you know a reformist uh, policy. Yeah, you know, one thing you learn about this scandal and uh, many other stories is that you know there's no winners uh, in in the Black Sox scandal. Um, everybody comes out of it looking kind of bad. Uh, there's you know. <laughs> Nobody really acted honorably. Um, you know, there, there's a few reporters uh, who really did try to, you know, blow the whistle and, and try to expose this. But, um, but you know, everybody had some ulterior motive, and everybody was trying to, um, you know, look out for number one. And, and that is true of Charles Comiskey with the White Sox. That's true of the players. That's you know, true of the gamblers as well. 
Um, so nobody really comes out looking good. There's a, a famous phrase uh, that was in Eight Men Out from the gambler Abe Attell, former boxing champion, and he said the Black Sox scandal was a story of cheaters cheating cheaters. And you know <laughs> that is that is absolutely true. You know everybody was looking uh, you know to score some easy money and. Some people were able to get some money out of this and others weren't. But uh, but yeah, there's uh, nobody, you know, and I think that's true of a lot of institutional scandals is that nobody really comes out looking good. It's, uh, you know, it, it's a hard story uh, in some cases, you know, to learn about. But um, but we're all better off for, for knowing more. We're all better off to continue learning um, about what's going on, about what's happening, about what's being covered up. Um, you know, those are those are stories that, uh, you know, help everybody uh, shine a light on, you know, these types of institutions. Major League Baseball is a $9 billion industry every year. Um, you know, again, sports gambling uh, is, you know, rampant all around the country and, and around the world. Um, so these are stories that we want to continue to tell and continue, uh, you know, to have people not forget their history because uh, there are some lessons from this scandal that people can, you know, use today and, and learn from and, and try to do better. And I've just been thinking the last few minutes, how uh, kismet was it back in, I guess, 1988, 89, right when those two movies were released, that was when everything blew up with Pete Rose. Like you couldn't, it's like, it was like, a, it was like the, that's like the forerunner to the NFL script committee commercials. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not sure Hollywood could have written a better script uh, for, for getting that out there and, you know, having uh, Pete Rose go down, you know, right as interest is surging in the black sock candle as well. Um, and, you know, I think uh, it certainly played a part. I think having, you know, two major Hollywood films uh, related to the Black Sox scandal, um, you know, in the background of the Pete Rose saga uh, when he was getting banned, I think, you know, it, it played a part. I mean, people were thinking about it. You know, the commissioner was thinking about the Black Sox, uh, you know, when he banned Pete Rose. So, I think, uh, yeah, it all plays a part. But again, every generation seems to learn this story in their own way. So we've yeah. had our own World Series scandals in recent years as well. And so the Black Sox uh, get brought up, uh, you know, all the time for that as well. Yeah, of course, the Houston Astros with the with the trash can. And and of course, now one of the one of those players, is, you know, George Springer is on my Blue Jays. And I have to just, oh, yeah, no, no, he did. Yeah. That, was, that was a different George Springer. <laughs> well, when he's not hitting, he isn't. Uh, I just want to sort of close out. How has Saber evolved over over decades, and and since and since you uh, went when became part of it, uh, Jacob? So I joined uh, when I was in high school um, in the late 1990s, and uh, you know it was a really cool organization to join because I got to meet people who were just as passionate about baseball as I was. Um, allowed me to take a, a really deep dive into any subject that I might have been interested in. It just so happened to be the Black Sox scandal, uh, most of all. But um, you know, I've, I've met so many amazing people, and you know, being part of an organization that that celebrates that, encourages that. Um, you know, I get to go to the, the events, the conventions uh, every year and, and, you know, see old friends and meet new ones because there's always new people coming up, you know, who love baseball just as much as I do and, uh, you know, who, who can teach me a lot about baseball. There's something I learn every single day talking to our members uh, about baseball. And, you know, baseball history is not just baseball history. It's, it's also, you know, American history and world history. And, you know, it's just it's it's part of our lives. It's part of our culture. Um, you know, it's something that uh, infects everything around it. And so, you know, the, you can learn through baseball. You can learn about 
anything else. You can learn about, you know, racism. You can learn about culture. You can learn about gambling. You know, you name it. You can learn about all mm-hmm. kinds of things um, through the lens of baseball and through the lens of sports. And so it's just it's a great uh, organization, you know, to have people that uh, share that passion with you. And, yeah, that, that's actually interesting. You, you, you grew up in Georgia, as I, as I recall, right? So how did and like how did you how did you even find out about it back in the late nineties as a I guess a high school aged uh, you know so, aspiring so journalist? One of the uh, national conventions uh, was in Louisville, Kentucky, where my relatives oh. are from. Um, I did not go to that convention uh, when I was sixteen years old, but that's that's where I heard about it. And uh, so that year, my uh, my parents got me a, a gift. Uh, for, for Christmas, got me a membership. Um, and so I started uh, receiving the uh, the Baseball Research Journal magazine and some of the oh, newsletters okay. um, and just, you know, took a while before I really got involved, uh, started becoming active in the organization. Uh, for the most part, I spent a lot of years just reading other people's stories. And uh, but then I started having some questions myself and started asking questions. And, uh, you know, people encouraged me to start digging into that and, you know, see if I can find out the answers and report back. And so started writing some articles, had my first magazine article published uh, in the National Pastime Journal for Sabre uh, in 2005. And, you know, ever since I've just been uh, learning more writing more getting more involved nice nice i get i i can actually you know yeah, that's that's interesting because i because, hey if anyone's listening to this who has you know a teenage child if they show an interest in something you know a niche tell them to go tell them to go for it now as someone who lives in chicago obviously i've you know watch a lot of mlb tv i wanted to ask what how big of a hole is it to not have jason benetti as their tv guy because he's moved over to the detroit tigers and he's one of the best there is. Oh, Jason is tremendous. I, you know, used to turn on, I'm not a White Sox fan myself. I just uh, do a lot of research on that team, but, um, but, you know, I used to turn on White Sox games just to listen to Jason and Steve Stone. Um, You know, if, if, you know, I'm a Atlanta Braves fan. If the Braves weren't playing or, you know, they were off that day or something, I turn on other games and uh, I often end up on a White Sox broadcast just to listen um, because those two were so good together. And it was just, you know, again, just a fun experience. That's what I love about TV and radio broadcasters, you know, who just make it fun. That's that's all I want. I want you to I want to you know see that you're enjoying this game just as much as I do. Um, and so, you know, Jason, uh, Jason's tremendous. That'll be a big loss, uh, here in Chicago and, and for the White Sox for sure. But, uh, at least he's still in baseball. At least he's still, you know, in the American league central. So we'll still have some opportunities here in Chicago to, to watch or listen to him. But, uh, yeah, that was, uh, he, he was, he and Steve Stone together were pretty great. Yeah, of course, Benetti calls, uh, I think college basketball and college football. I was watching one of football game. Can't remember which teams were playing. But his analyst went into this long explanation about, you know, uh, the, the reads the quarterback is making, and and Jason just deadpans. I'm the play-by-play guy. I just follow the ball. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's no, he's he's special. It's uh, he always has good rapport. He he makes everyone else with him better. Um, you know, in the booth, and so you know, no matter who his partner is, uh, they're always having fun. You're always, you know, entertained and enjoying the broadcast. So that's uh, quality I really like to see in in any broadcaster. Well, and just to, yeah, great. And Jacob, this is amazing. Uh, so you have so much gratitude for the time you've given us uh, this evening uh, on a very cold. We're uh, recording this on a very cold Tuesday night. Uh, uh, in, across uh, pretty much all of North America. I haven't been outside in about 48 hours myself. 
but I should rectify that now that it's dark and even colder. Uh, just wondered, wondered uh, as a as a reader, what a what a you know baseball books or maybe you have on your radar screen anticipating for uh, 2024. I guess I'm asking you to start us on our chase producing. <laughs> oh, that's a good question. I actually haven't seen too many uh, books that are that are coming out soon. Um, I usually see them after they're published, but uh, certainly there have been quite a few in the last year uh, that uh, that have been interesting. Uh, Mark Armour, uh, Sabres uh, board president, and Dan Levitt uh, did a book called Intentional Balk uh, last year on cheating, the his long history of cheating in baseball uh, that oh. I really enjoy. There's, uh, yeah, quite a, quite a few others, but... Uh, but yeah, it's, uh, you know, again, there, I'm always learning something new uh, from all the new baseball books that are coming out there. So I'm sure there will be something uh, coming down the line that will catch my eye. Yeah, I know. I know Russell Carlton brought in a book last year about kind of just the evolution of rule changes and stuff. And we ho hopefully get get him just because, well, you know, we had a year with these new rules. Uh, we'll see how... If we want to revisit that and anything out of date. Well, Jacob, I really appreciate the time today. And again, uh, the book is... And as I mentioned in the intro, Joe Jackson, plaintiff versus Chicago American League Baseball Club. And it was brought out by Eckhart's Press last May with uh, Jacob Pomeranke and David A. Fletcher as co-authors.